Hi, everyone. I'm Greg Gershuni, and I'm the Executive Director of the Aspen Institute's Energy and Environment Program. Thanks for joining the second installment in our Innovators series, a virtual exchange of ideas. Today, we're featuring an innovator in energy. For those of you who didn't join us in the first episode two weeks ago with Melissa Roberts in Innovator and Resilience, then you missed our discussion about dual disasters and preparing for floods and hurricanes during the COVID crisis. You can check that out on YouTube. Mark your calendar because on May 27th, we'll be talking about innovators in food and specifically looking at food waste. In a moment, I'll introduce today's innovator. We'll start out with a short conversation between the two of us, followed by some questions and answers from those of you who tuned in. So please submit your questions now via, via the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. This week's innovator, Dr. Varun Sivaram, visiting senior fellow at the Center for Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. He also holds appointments at Columbia as an adjunct senior research scholar at the School of International and Public Affairs and as an affiliate of the Data Science Institute. Most excitingly, Varun is starting as a non-resident senior fellow with our program, the Energy and Environment Program at the Aspen Institute this month, where he'll be working on energy policy. Previously, Varun was the chief technology officer of Renew Power, where he led research and development for India's largest producer of renewable energy. Before that, he served as the director of the Energy and Climate Program at the Council of Foreign Relations and as a senior energy advisor to the Los Angeles mayor and the New York governor's office. He has a PhD in physics from Oxford University, and you can check out his new book, Taming the Sun, on Amazon and other platforms. So welcome, Varun. Greg, thanks so much for having me. So um, let's start with how you're doing. Um, I know you just moved uh, back to DC from Delhi uh, just uh, recently. How is that, and how is that, especially during a pandemic? I, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to have escaped the lockdown by just a few days in India. Um, you know, I had to say bye to a lot of wonderful friends, an amazing organization in Renew, um, and, and, and made it here to, to Washington, D.C., where I can't say I am, uh, you know, I'm, I'm quite grateful that I'm back in the same place as my wife after two years of long distance. Uh, and I'm also, also super excited to join your excellent program uh, at Aspen uh, and Jason Bordoff's spectacular program at, uh, at the Center for Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. So, a lot of great friends, excited to be back, uh, but but it, it was sad to leave so quickly. Yeah, it, Delhi's a, a great place. Um, I know I got to visit you when you were there just, just a few months ago, and um, uh, it, I'll be excited to be able to return sometime soon. Um, so it's exciting to have you back in DC though, and maybe someday we'll be able to see you in person. Um, so uh, let's talk climate change. How do you think about policy and technology and their interaction with each other and how that could impact emissions? Um, you've had experience on both sides, tech innovation and policy. Uh, and what, what are your thoughts on that? Look, I, as you know, Greg, um, I, I started as a techie. Um, frankly, when I started, I didn't really think policy had much to do with addressing climate change. I studied physics. I worked in solar cell manufacturing companies. And the idea from this kind of techno-optimist school of thought was we'd invent our way out of the climate crisis, that we'd make solar cells so cheap that you know, they would wash away the competition and we wouldn't have to worry too much about fossil fuels. The more, however, recently, as I've gotten into the policy world, and I've tried to you know, flip back and forth between them. At Renew, I was back in industry and in tech, and 
and now I'm, uh, I'm working on policy again at, at Columbia, that the more I get into the policy world, the more I realize that public policy has an essential role to play, that, that technology is necessary, but perhaps not sufficient for solving climate change. Now, to be clear, I still think technology is super, super important. Um, the International Energy Agency keeps this you know, running list of all the technologies we're gonna need to combat climate change. And there's like 45 of them. Of those 45, only eight are on track, on progress to, to you know, help us avert a uh, catastrophic climate change scenario. And so we're doing terribly on the rest, more than 35 technologies, and we need to accelerate progress. The, the reason I think policy is so important though is uh, because of these twin market failures. We, we often think about the first market failure, the one that we misprice carbon pollution. So we let polluters get away with polluting uh, greenhouse gases or other kinds of pollution uh, without having to pay for it. And so, you know, we think a lot about how to fix that market failure with carbon pricing and other instruments. But there's a second market failure that often goes underappreciated. And that second market failure is just as important. It's a market failure where we underinvest in a free market in innovation. A private firm is unlikely to invest the right amount in innovation in order to achieve the societally optimal outcome because society benefits when a firm or a government invests in research and development because that creates knowledge that everybody can use. When we think about the history of this country, the history of the United States, the technologies that have changed our lives, sure, many of them came from private companies, but they were also policy driven in some sense. It was military research and development programs, for example, through DARPA, that helped birth the semiconductor industry. The Apollo mission uh, and the continued support for satellites uh, enables us to use GPS on our phones. Um, from, I was just reading the statistic, from 2010 to 2016, all 210 drugs that were approved by the FDA had some trace back to federal R&D investments wow. in the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. So in energy, the same thing's gonna be true. We gotta fix this market failure uh, through public policy to support technology. And it's not just like any industry. I mean, energy is a, is a painfully capital intensive, long lead time industry for an energy technology to get from invention all the way to market diffusion, to commercial success. So, you know, the, the, the short answer is I think energy, uh, I think technology and policy in the energy space uh, have to go hand in hand. Otherwise we're not gonna solve this climate problem. So in looking at your most recent role, um, you were the chief technology officer at Renew Power. And so you looked at the R&D side of things, but it, you were also working for a company that deployed those technologies um, you know, onto the grid, uh, you know, turned them on, they powered people's homes. How do you see kind of that transition from research to development to deployment? Um, and what could we be doing better both in the US and India? Yeah. I mean let me first mention that I got the opportunity, you know, here I am kind of an academic, I got the opportunity to go into an industry role in India, uh, mostly because of the vision of uh, my CEO, Sumanth Sinha. Sumanth is an entrepreneur, founded Renew less than a decade ago, and has already built it up to be the country's largest renewable energy company. Um, Renew, just for context, produces about 1% of India's electricity. And all of that comes from utility scale, solar and wind power and a little bit of distributed solar power. It's remarkable how quickly they've grown. They're a multi-billion dollar company now. But you're right, Greg, they, they deploy projects, right? They build big construction projects. In, in some sense, you could do this line of business by being you know, a, a variant on a real estate company. 
but Suman's vision was, hey, we don't just want to be a renewable energy company. We want to be the, the best renewable energy company. And, and the only way to be the best one is to stay ahead of the competition. And to do that, you're going to have to invest in technology. So, so you know, really credit to him. I was lucky to have a chance to come in, build the company's first you know, big R&D budget and portfolio, really get resources to invest in you know, over two dozen different R&D projects, new technologies, um, digital technologies, and I hope we get to, we get to talk about that later on. Um, you know, Greg, you and I have talked about why um, India's energy transition is probably the most important in the entire world. At, at least that's, that's my opinion. And I'm super excited by the work that companies like Renew are doing to deploy renewable energy. But I think in addition, we're going to need to deploy just a whole range of other technologies in order to achieve this all important energy transition. And I, I'm both optimistic and pessimistic about it. Would, would love to talk more about it. Yeah, I mean, so the, the, the route or the road that India takes over the next decade or so is really gonna be impactful uh, to the whole global system and the ability for us to stay under 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, I guess looking, you know, having a really close look at the Indian electricity system, but also the transportation system, which, um, you know, in some of the work that we do at EEP um, works on electric mobility, both in US and India. What, what are the lessons that you've seen there? Um, I mean, let's bring kind of digital technologies into this. How can how can digital technologies transform these systems? And I guess, what are you most optimistic about um, in that transformation? That's like four questions rolled I know, into one. I know, uh, <laughs> I just couldn't stop. <laughs> Let me actually back up before we, we address these, yeah. this bundle of questions. Let me back up and just give some background. Um, at least before the COVID-19 uh, uh, crisis, India's carbon emissions were growing rapidly and they showed no signs of stopping. And frankly, COVID, you know, although it's depressed things like power demand, it may very well be temporary. We may snap right back and India might continue to grow rapidly. By mid-century, even though India today is the world's fourth largest emitter behind China, the United States, and if you count Europe as an entity, Europe, by mid-century, India could be the world's largest emitter as its economy and its population both grow. And the way to think about this is today, India is very fossil fuel intensive. Um, about three quarters of its energy comes from fossil fuels, coal for electricity and industry, oil for cars and trucks primarily. Um, but, but the country's modernizing, right? Demand for energy is just skyrocketing. Um, about two thirds of Indians currently live in rural areas and two thirds of household energy use comes from bioenergy like wood and cow dung. Most folks may not know that, but, but by mid-century, most Indians are gonna wanna go to cities and they're gonna to wanna to replace traditional bioenergy for, for these more modern fuels. Um, just a couple more stats. Just 5% of Indians have air conditioning and fewer than 2% own their own cars. The average Indian uses a 10th of the energy of the average American. Um, so as, you know, as, as a middle class grows, Indians are reasonably gonna to wanna to cool their homes and uh, drive to work. Um, and India's population will be 2 billion by mid century. This economy could, could increase by a factor of 10. So if India continues on this path, remarkable demographic and urbanization growth, and it does so in a fossil fuel intensive way, some of the trends that we see right now are just gonna intensify. Um, I think 22 of the world's 30 most polluted cities are in India. 
millions of Indians die from toxic air uh, annually. Greg, when you visited India, you saw firsthand uh, how bad the pollution can be. Um, I, I visited, it, it's not just, you know, generically in India. Some of these effects are concentrated in the places where fossil fuels are produced and used. So uh, I, I visited a coal mine along with some journalists, um, Akshat Rathi at Bloomberg. I, I visited a coal mine and at this coal mine, um, there was not only, you know, one of India's largest concentrations of mining, but also its largest concentration of coal electricity production. And you see these communities that are literally right next to the coal power plant in Korba, Chhattisgarh. And a, a fresh layer of ash gets deposited all over the community every single day. And the critical air pollution levels for various pollutants are the highest, not just in India, but in the whole world. So India can't continue in this trajectory. And it's not just for its own domestic reasons, it's also the rest of the world needs India uh, to, to move to a, to a cleaner trajectory. And so the, the good news, I think, is that this clean energy transition is now underway. And that's a shocking thing. Five years ago, um, you may remember this, Greg, five years ago when I joined the Council on Foreign Relations, my first ever article was, what a dumb idea for India to announce a 100 gigawatt solar target. Right, the, the new Prime Minister of the administration said that in 2015. I said, there's, there's no way. Um, India has a negligible amount of solar. Now they want to build more than half of the entire installed capacity around the world in the next seven years. Not going to happen. And then uh, I was forced to eat my words um, about, I think, eight months later, when it became clear that India's solar capacity was growing faster than anywhere else in the world. By 2017, India became the world's second largest solar market, and the rest is history. Uh, today, uh, India has a little over 70 gigawatts of solar and wind capacity. I mean, it, it sounds like a big number, right? But, but still, solar and wind are producing less than 10% of India's electricity. But these government targets are crazy. By 2030, if the government meets its enormous target, um, clean energy could account for 50% of India's electricity. I mean, it's, it's a super, super ambitious target. Um, very, very recently, I'll, I'll actually answer your question now, um, some things that I'm, I'm excited for. Very recently, a couple things that I've seen uh, at Renew and in the market get me really excited. So uh, in January, um, I was uh, lucky to, to be at Renew and we worked, at, uh, we worked on what's known as India's first storage bid. So India uh, enables companies to bid competitively against each other to win the rights to build renewable energy power plants. And for the first time they said, okay, we're, we're not only gonna let you build a renewable energy power plant and sell the electricity, we're gonna ask you to build storage and produce electricity on demand during some of the critical hours in the morning and in the evening. And Renew along with one other company was you know, the, the first company to win such a bid and will build one of the world's biggest batteries uh, as a result. That was super cool. The cost all in of the renewables and the storage was less than the cost of, a, of, of power from coal. So the, you know, the, the recent coal auction came out at five and a half cents per kilowatt hour and, and our bid beat that. And then just last week, Renew also won the, the next kind of historic bid. Uh, it was a bid for uh, round the clock power. So the idea is, can you build renewable energy and deliver it to a distribution utility the entity that delivers energy to the end user, like a home or a business, can you deliver 400 megawatts at 80% capacity factor? That means that you're always producing 400 megawatts of power. It's not going up and down. 
Now, to be clear, um, the, the bid was structured in such a way that what a company like Renew can do is severely overbuild wind and solar. And you know, you, you can pull together many different sites around the country in the best solar region in the desert, in the best wind region. You can put them all together and you can really produce way more than needed and only send a flat baseline amount, 400 megawatts, to your customer and sell the rest of it on the market. So it, it, it's, it's, you know, it, it's complicated, but it is a tremendous achievement that a single producer of renewable energy and a single contracted off-taker of renewable energy can contract for firm baseload, you might say, uh, renewable energy from wind and solar, uh, despite you know, weather risk. And, 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 and that's a huge thing. So, so I'm really excited for where this market's going. Um, I think storage is, is going to take off in India. Um, and uh, I think there's, there's plenty of, of uh, exciting uh, prospects for, for other technologies uh, as well, from, from digital to, to industrial technologies. Go ahead, Greg. So uh, kind of that's a, that's a lot of movement just in the last five years that India has taken um, you know, under Prime Minister Modi. Um, what are the lessons that we can learn in the US that we can apply to our energy policy here um, and vice versa, what are the things that the U.S. is doing well that um, we can, you know, bring to India and uh, share with our colleagues there? Great, great question. Um, U.S.-India collaboration on energy, I think, is a very, it's, it's a vital kind of uh, axis of cooperation. Under the Obama administration, as, as you well know, you, you worked on this, um, under the Obama administration, energy was, in fact, a, a core uh, axis of collaboration. And uh, the United States and India collaborated on clean energy research and development, as well as clean energy deployment. And I think that's, that's very important going forward. Um, let me say uh, a couple of things about how I see India's energy transition going forward, and then how the United States might be able to help India and vice versa. Um, to be clear, even though India's renewable energy progress is impressive, it's just the first part of the first leg of a three-legged strategy. All right, I hope that wasn't too confusing. So in my mind, the, the way India's energy transition has to go, if it actually is going to reduce its emissions uh, you know, to, to net zero or somewhere thereabouts the century, it's gotta do three things. The, the first thing it's gotta do is it started on, it's build a lot of renewable energy. Now to be clear, even though it's built a lot of renewable energy, it may very well need to build 30 to 60 times more renewable energy. And that's because it's going to need to power its rising power demand. It's gonna need to meet new sources of power demand, um, like electrification. So all of this renewable energy is going to go toward meeting new demands and replacing existing coal. The, the, the second thing that India really hasn't started on is, is to link energy using sectors together. So you know, if, if renewable energy is kind of the, the beating heart of your electricity, or, or sorry, of your energy system, of your whole economy-wide uh, energy system, then you need every other sector that uses energy to somehow be linked back to renewable energy. But hey, renewable energy only produces electricity. Well, you can start to electrify certain sectors. You can take the transportation sector and electrify it. It'll look different than the US. Very few people drive sedans in India. You've got motorcycles, scooters, auto rickshaws, three-wheelers. Those are the kinds of things that need to get electrified. Buses are a much bigger deal. Um, but, but in addition to things that you can electrify, and by the way, you can electrify a little bit of industry, for example, through electric furnaces, you're gonna need to do things that you just can't electrify, but you have to make them low carbon. So in India, that means that various industrial processes 
that currently burn coal in order to produce heat, we're going to need to take them off coal. And we need some sort of carrier that links the electricity production from renewable energy to these end uses of heat and energy. Hydrogen is a good candidate. If you have a ton of renewable energy, very cheap solar and wind, and you're able to produce hydrogen by splitting water, for example, uh, then what you can do uh, is take that hydrogen as a carrier and use it to power industrial processes. And the hydrogen actually acts as a storage medium. It's actually a better battery if you think about it. Um, so the second step of this three-step process is linking energy sectors together. And the third step of the process is to radically improve energy efficiency. I mean, one stat that always blows my mind, actually I'll give you two as a bonus. The, the two stats that blow my mind are, uh, by, by mid-century, just to power the insane amount of air conditioning that India needs, uh, India needs, it's going to need to add the equivalent power system capacity of all of Europe today. And wow. the second mind-blowing stat is uh, three quarters of India's urban infrastructure in 2040 have not yet been built. Like we're going to have to build it going forward. But it's like this huge opportunity for efficient infrastructure and equipment. Like India needs air conditioners that are 40% more efficient than they are today. And they have to work in high heat and high humidity. Um, so, you know, th th these three steps are important. I personally think most of the progress has currently been on that first step of starting to build renewable energy. We've got to scale that up but then we need to do the other two steps. And that's how India's energy transition will play out. Now, every country's energy transition is gonna be different. Um, in other countries, you know, th there are certain similarities. You, you probably want hydrogen as a carrier everywhere around the world. You probably want a lot of renewable energy everywhere around the world. In other countries, it may be more feasible to build more nuclear power. I, I personally think that nuclear should play an important role in the United States' uh, energy transition. It certainly will in China's, for example. Um, I think carbon capture and sequestration in the United States is going to play an even bigger role. And it's because we have things like the institutional capacity to do these massive projects. In India, the, the, the big selling point of renewable energy is it's, it's just so easy. Look, I don't want to underplay what we did at Renew. At Renew, it's, it's remarkable how these enormous projects come together within 12 to 18 months. But renewable energy, you know, fields of solar panels uh, are far easier to build than a massive coal power plant and certainly a massive coal power plant with carbon capture and sequestration. Um, what can the United States do uh, to, to help India out? Um, I, think, I think that there are probably three things that, that the United States can do. Um, the first, and, and I, I think you and I are well aligned on this, the first most important thing is the United States can innovate. The more US innovation leads to technologies that can be deployed in India, to achieve these critical deep decarbonization needs, whether in industry and in transportation, et cetera, the faster India is going to be able to decarbonize. Now, I don't wanna make the, the statement that India is just a technology taker. Look, I was thrilled as a, as a CTO in India, I got to talk to you know, dozens of startup companies every week. There is this burgeoning, amazing tech ecosystem in India, it's awesome. Um, and, and I got to work with many of those founders uh, on partnerships, R&D projects, so there's a lot of innovation happening in India and the US and India should collaborate. The, the second thing is um, uh, it, it's gonna be important for the United States to offer regulatory assistance. So as India starts to modernize its electricity markets, for example, there are things it can learn from the, from the United States. It shouldn't copy US wholesale markets wholesale, no pun intended, um, but, but there are design considerations that can be used. And then the, the third thing is um, international finance is really important. Look. 
India's domestic capital markets are shallow. It's hard to raise debt in India for these massive projects, even if they're great, great projects. And so our company, at least, made great use of both international equity and debt. You know, our large shareholders were from all over the world. Goldman Sachs, the Canadian pension fund. Um, but uh, in addition, we also raised dollar bonds, hundreds of millions of dollars of dollar bonds um, on international debt markets. So uh, international capital flows are important. And insofar as the United States can uh, promote those flows, make it easier for American investors to connect with Indian counterparts. Um, I, I personally believe the opportunity is so strong. And the more that India makes its market more conducive and welcoming to foreign investment, uh, the better. So those are some ways that the US can, can collaborate with India. And so kind of shifting gears just a little bit, what's, what do you see as the role in the transition for the electricity system for artificial intelligence, data, other new technologies? You talked about the 45 technologies that the IEA lists and most of them are not uh, market ready. What, where does the investment need to be in those technologies and you know, how does data and, and AI play into that? Yeah, great, great question. I, I'm really excited about uh, data, AI and decarbonization. Um, and uh, if you're interested, um, uh, a book that we wrote at CFR uh, right before I left is called Digital Decarbonization, and it goes into the various ways that digitalization can advance clean energy systems. Because when you look at the, that list of IEA technologies that you mentioned, many of these things are really capital intensive and hard technologies with long lead times, you know, carbon capture and sequestration, clean cement, clean steel technologies. Uh, these things are hard to, to develop. Um, but digital technologies, well, well, we know how quickly you and I like downloaded Snapchat, which is never, we're probably too old for that. But, um, you know, uh, digital technologies propagate rapidly. Um, and in, in the energy space, there is great potential for these digital technologies to be quickly adapted to existing infrastructure. And that means that we're going to see diffusion that is not energy-like, it's software or app-like. Um, some of the things I'm most excited about in the clean energy space are forecasting. I think machine learning, ML, um, is, is just perfect for forecasting, for example, how much electricity demand there will be tomorrow or next week or next month, and how much renewable energy generation there's going to be next hour, tomorrow, next month, et cetera. Um, you can do very cool things with forecasts. Uh, and the more data you have, the better. You can make a forecast just with satellite data. You can make it with some historical on the ground data. You can even put a cloud sensor on your solar array, look up at the sky and use that historical data plus some weather forecasts to tell your battery when to charge uh, in order to optimize its state of operation. So um, forecasting is exciting. Another field where I think MLAI is exciting is preventive maintenance. I think um, uh, the ability for us to say, and, and by the way, at Renew, I'm so excited. We opened a digital laboratory and, and I, I worked on this and until I left. I'm, I'm really thrilled with what the team uh, came up with. Um, it's a digital laboratory staffed with data scientists and data engineers to solve tricky problems in renewable energy. And one of them is, how do we make sure wind turbines don't break down? And how do we tell six months ahead of time whether we can save a particular critical component, a gearbox, for example? Um, and that requires harnessing just thousands of different variables and you know, years of data, uh, crunching it together to find an algorithm which a human just will not be able to notice. Um, a couple other quick, quick ideas for AI and ML. Um, image analysis, so 
we can use a drone to take a picture of a solar array. We're already doing this. This is one of the R&D projects. Look at a solar array and say, hey, um, using my image detection, automatic image detection, I can figure out whether there is a fault because my thermal image of that solar panel shows a hot spot. And there's no, there's no human in the loop. Um, the, the, you know, ML is solving that for you. Uh, similarly, um, I can detect you know, faults um, on, on a transmission line or, or on a blade of a wind turbine. And then finally, um, I think in the long run, AI, ML, and digital controls are gonna help us to orchestrate a smart grid. Today, the, the grid is not very smart, right? Um, but if you're able to not only orchestrate how the grid itself works, but all the things that are connected to the grid on the demand side, then you can enable the grid to dynamically respond to intermittent solar and wind generation. So two weeks ago, Google made waves by saying, hey, we're gonna tell our data centers to run only when there's, or to run their most intensive indexing operations only when there's excess solar and wind electricity on the grid. And that's a huge thing. If, if uh, other sorts of demand, uh, data centers are up in front, but if other sources of demand can do the same thing, then we don't actually need storage in its traditional sense mm -hmm. as much. Our, our, our demand can keep up with fluctuating supply. Um, more money was spent in 2017 on digitalization of the electricity grid than on all the natural gas turbines around the world. It, it gives you a sense of how excited investors and firms are for, for stuff that moves faster than normal energy infrastructure. That's fantastic. And I know new digital companies are popping up all over the place, providing assistance and help to utilities and other companies that are uh, looking to make this transition. Um, so I've got three more questions, um, three kind of quick questions, because I want to make sure we've got plenty of time for uh, questions from the audience, and we've got a lot of them. Um, based um, on your experience and your knowledge um, throughout your career, what gives you the most hope for the future in terms of global climate change, global energy policy? Um, where do you see the most impact happening? Uh, I'm going to cheat. I'm going to say two things. I'm really sorry, Greg. Um, right. The first relates to India, particularly. The second is kind of broader. Um, in, in India in particular, um, I, I went in there thinking, oh, God, this is a dysfunctional electricity system, right? The utilities are insolvent, like nothing works, like this is gonna be terrible. And as it so turned out, um, stuff is happening much faster than expected, just because India works kind of a different way than we might expect in the United States. Uh, for example, um, on, on Diwali 2019, this is the most important Indian holiday of the year. Um, the, one of our large solar farms was supposed to be energized and connected to the grid. None of the laborers showed up, or very few of them, because it was the most popular holiday. And so at, at Renew, you know, you have this extraordinarily competent team of project managers and they start resorting to WhatsApp messages and phone calls to recruit brand new people. The scene on the site was just chaotic, but at the end of the day, almost a thousand people made it there and completed this complex operation. And, and you know, you've got these guys in their cell phones saying, Arey, like uh, that by the way is a, an Indian word that has a lot of uh, versatility. Um, it, it means kind of like, yo, uh, and they're, they're trying to get the trucks unlocked that have the solar panels locked in them. It all worked out. Site got energized and India's moving forward. It's moving forward faster than, than I could have hoped. Um, more broadly, I'm excited by what I've seen in laboratories around the world. Um, you know, I went to China uh, to talk to um, all the CTOs of solar companies from you know, the 
the biggest solar companies out there. And I talked to them about what their technology aspirations are. And they didn't really excite me. The industry was not what excited me. What excited me was what I saw in laboratories from uh, US laboratories to Belgian laboratories where the next generation of solar technologies are being developed. And uh, that, that's just so exciting to me um, because I think new solar technologies will enable us to bring down the costs even faster. I, I would agree with you on that second point and even say even more broadly, I've gotten to visit a number of the US national labs and some of the work that they're doing from uh, battery research to you know, systems integration to uh, advanced nuclear is really fascinating and kind of a, a, you know, a very hopeful uh, look into the future. Um, so speaking of a look into the future, if you were, let's say, president or speaker of the house or you know, leader of the free world for a day, what energy policy would you enact uh, you know, and why? Uh, I would task the United States with launching its next national innovation mission. We've already had one to put a man on the moon, right? We've had one to develop life-saving drugs. The next one has to be uh, to develop the technologies critical to deep decarbonization. We should triple U.S. funding for energy innovation, uh, and we should uh, make sure that the United States is where the export-oriented energy industries of the future are based and not China. That's the, the number one thing the U.S. can do. And anyone who tells you otherwise uh, hasn't thought hard enough about um, the, the role of innovation in solving climate change. Um, last question. So, you know, we've been uh, stay at home orders for a month and a half, two months here in DC. Um, what's your go to comfort food uh, since you've been home? I, I got to say, uh, I got to say pepperoni pizza from Nicoletta, which is a uh, one of our neighborhood restaurants. And we're, we're happy to help them out. And they, they certainly help me out by keeping me uh, comfortable and well fed. Excellent. Well, we're going to um, go to a couple of questions uh, from the audience that people have been sending in. Um, so to start, a question from Douglas, um, can India meet its growing energy needs without using more coal? That's a terrific question, uh, Douglas. Um, the, the answer is um, India can certainly meet its incremental energy needs with just renewable energy. And that's become even clearer now that COVID-19 has hit. Um, even before COVID-19, uh, India's incremental power demand was rising a little less slowly because of an economic slowdown. And so when we look at projections, the Central Electricity Authority in India has projected that the growth of solar and wind as the government meets its targets, or even as the government like fails to meet its ambitious target but gets part of the way there, the growth of solar and wind can meet all the incremental power demand. Now, that's good because we won't have more coal. It's bad because the level of coal generation won't decrease. And the amount of coal that we use for industry will only increase because industry is growing rapidly in India. So the correct question, I mean, your question's awesome. But, but in addition to that question, the, the next question is, okay, uh, we can meet incremental power demand from renewable energy, but how do we eat into coal in industry and eat into existing coal in electricity? And that, is, that requires a far faster build out of renewable energy than even what we're doing right now. So I'm going to kind of combine two questions. Um, the first is, how can an energy transition um, also be a just transition in India? And then um, connected, and maybe this is sort of leading, you know, leading the witness. What's the role of decentralized solar 
um, in India's energy transition and how can that be accelerated? Phenomenal, phenomenal questions. Um, and, and if I didn't do a good job of answering this up front, uh, mea culpa, the, the role of an energy transition first and foremost in India is economic development. Look, the rest of the world can say India is a ticking climate change bomb, and it would be true. But fundamentally, uh, India's development objectives are the first imperative. Um, for, for India to achieve the quality of life of at least a middle-income country, it's going to need to increase its energy consumption per person by 3x. India needs to become high energy and clean energy. Um, and so the, the whole point uh, of moving to clean energy sources has to be, hey, let's reduce pollution so that people don't die as often. And let's make energy cheaper so that more people can use energy to do things like powered air conditioners. Um, and, and if the energy transition comes at the expense of development, then the Indian government and the Indian people are perfectly legitimate in demanding that the energy transition stop because their first goal has to be development. So, so I think equity is so important here. Now, the second question is, what role does decentralized energy play in this? Um, I, I personally believe that decentralized energy in its purest form, which is household decentralized energy, you know, solar on your rooftop or solar, you know, a, a, what are known as solar home systems uh, in rural villages, um, th these tend to be equated with equity, which I think is a mistake. Um, if what your goal is, is to get the cheapest, most abundant, ubiquitous energy to people, uh, you want to take advantage of economies of scale. Uh, and, and solar and wind are far cheaper when you build them at big scales than at really small scales. There is, however, a good role to play, I believe, for what I call intermediate scale decentralization. So not solar at the scale of homes, but solar at the megawatt scale that's built, let's say, in a peri-urban area, in an area where you have some, some spare land available at the outskirts of a city, and you're able to forego expensive transmission and distribution infrastructure to get that energy to the communities that need it or the industries that need it. So I do believe that locating renewable energy close to the point of consumption can be great, but going too far to either extreme, only doing enormous big central plants or only doing uh, very small scale, super decentralized plants, um, neither will get you the, what the Goldilocks solution will, which is megawatt scale solar uh, that's near to consumption that avoids transmission, but still harnesses uh, economies of scale. So I think that'll be important for India. And th those questions were from Vijay and Neil. Um, question kind of flipping uh, the viewpoint um, from Tushar, what policy measures can be taken to promote demand response um, with consumers? Um, and so I think of, you know, when you were talking earlier about time of day and, you know, do, you know charging things at night, um, I run my dishwasher when there's, you know, the most electricity available. I try not to, you know, do things on the weekends when other people are using electricity. So what are the things that um, we can do on DR that, um, that would help the transition? Greg, I'm not sure if it was you or Dushar who was saying that uh, you run your dishwasher at times of high uh, penetration, but that's fantastic. That's better than most Americans do. Most Americans do not think about when they run their dishwasher. I certainly don't. Um, but as it so happens, Indians are already conditioned to think about shifting their electricity use simply because they have to. The electricity goes off multiple times a day. I can tell you from experience. Um, uh, and uh, as a result, like you have to be fairly flexible about where you use your electricity. In addition, uh, Indians are price sensitive. Um, and so 
the, the combination of being willing to shift your demand and being sensitive to fluctuating prices means that the, the policy tool of real-time pricing can really induce uh, positive economic behavior. Uh, folks, I believe, will be very willing to shift their consumption around based on varying prices. Now, of course, both the United States and in India, you don't want consumers to be in a situation where they don't understand the fluctuating prices. You know, they're fluctuating every minute or every hour. It's hard to keep track. And so that's another place where digitalization, sorry, I keep harping on this theme, digitalization can play this, this important role where um, a, a digital agent, for example, can try and optimize your uh, electricity appliances or an aggregator can try and optimize a network of connected uh, users and appliances. Um, but, but I think India is just primed for uh, demand response in a way that other countries are not. The United States is not primed for that. We, we have much higher inflexible expectations of what our uh, electricity appliances should do. Uh, unlike you, Greg, and I, it sounds like you're very thoughtful. Well, I, I think I'm not the average consumer of electricity. So um, I think the average consumer of electricity in the US spends 18 minutes a year uh, thinking about the electricity they get. And <laughs> most of that's when they're paying their bills. So. Um, so next question is uh, related to price fluctuations. How does low oil prices impact the transition to, to green technology? And then a second, that's from um, Majid. And then separately, a second question is, what do you see as the role of EVs um, You know, in India? You talked about four-wheelers, three-wheelers, two-wheelers. Um, do lower oil prices now impact that transition? Is that transition coming soon? Yeah. Majid, great question. Um, look, uh, low oil prices have an extraordinarily complex propagating set of effects in India. So let me just walk through them. When the price of oil falls in India, um, what tends to happen is India's exchange rate improves. The strength of the rupee tends to be very tied to the, inversely, to the uh, oil price because India is a heavy importer of oil and oil tends to dominate, petroleum tends to dominate um, its uh, export-import balance. Now, um, when, when India's exchange rate strengthens, um, this is great for solar and wind because we often uh, you know, raise debt externally and therefore pay back debt in, in a dollar-denominated form. Uh, not always, often we raise domestic debt, but, but insofar as, as a company is trying to pay back uh, loans internationally or it's buying solar panels that are denominated in dollars, uh, it's really important for the Indian rupee to be strong. Um, now, falling oil prices, oh, by, by the way, one more thing I should mention, because the, the macroeconomics are fascinating here. The, the, the number one most important thing uh, to the Indian renewable energy industry, I didn't realize this until I got there, is the US government's Federal Reserve interest rate. When the Fed moves interest rates, it has this enormous knock-on effect in the rest of emerging economies. Um, capital flight happens every time uh, that the Fed makes you know, a, a move that, that hurts confidence in, in emerging markets. Uh, when the Fed cuts rates, it's fantastic for us. We can suddenly borrow for, for much less. So it, it was just funny to me that in many of the executive meetings that we'd have, we'd fixate on what the US Federal Reserve was doing. I'm like, I, I just moved to India and we still talk about the Fed. Um, the, the other question that, that you mentioned, Greg, was uh, uh, what role do electric vehicles play here? So low oil prices, as you know, are going to make driving uh, a petroleum-fueled vehicle cheaper by comparison than an electric vehicle. 
as it stands, electric vehicles face stiff barriers or steep barriers uh, for, for you know, displacing uh, fossil fuel cars. So it's not great for electric vehicles. Um, in India, what you're going to need for electric vehicles is charging infrastructure um, and you know, affordable electric models. And fortunately, you know, we start to see some uh, two and three wheelers that are electric that are affordable. Four wheelers generally are not affordable. Um, there are only a couple models uh, that, that are. And the charging infrastructure is extremely inadequate. Um, India might be, by the way, a very interesting place to do uh, battery swapping. Because of the characteristics, for example, a lot of vehicles are operated in fleets. Um, battery swapping might make more sense in India than it did in, in, in many Western countries. And, and as you guys know, you know, companies like A Better Place went bankrupt trying to do battery swapping. And so I actually think that there could be a battery swapping renaissance uh, in India. Um, and I think that if we do have either battery swapping or charging stations, uh, there's a chance for these to become useful resources for the grid. You can imagine that a battery swapping station basically holds onto a bunch of batteries and decides when to charge them. And by doing that in response to time varying pricing from the grid saying, hey, there's a lot of solar right now, so energy is cheap, or hey, we have a, a deficit of wind and solar, so energy is really expensive. That battery swapping station can actually act as a source of flexibility for the grid. So again, I, I wanna drive home this point of how electrification interconnects the power and transport sectors. This is fascinating. And we've got time for probably two more questions, although I have to say, there's gotta be at least 15, 20 more questions here. Um, so I can see there is a big demand for the, the knowledge that you've uh, accumulated over, over your career. So um, maybe we'll have to do a part two of this. Um, Thank you, Greg. So, so uh, Gregory, not me, different Gregory, um, asked, to, asked for you to connect the dots on policy and innovation. Um, he said, Noah Kaufman, who's your colleague at Columbia, talks about innovation um, that it's true we need innovation, but innovation isn't policy, it's the result of policy. So put on your policymaker hat, you know, uh, if you're the Secretary of Energy and you're deciding the policy that determines which, what research and development gets done, where do you focus, where do you put your money, um, how do you think about um, innovation? Yeah, look, first of all, if Noah says it, it must be right. He is an actual economist and I play economist sometimes. Um, so, uh, you know the saying, all economists want to be physicists? This physicist wants to be an economist. Um, I agree with Noah. Uh, innovation is not policy. And uh, innovation, strictly defined in the economics literature, is uh, taking inventions, new technologies, to market for the first time, commercializing them. That process, I think, can be accelerated by public policy. But the only way to do it is to broadly target public policy across what we call the innovation pipeline. Um, by the way, I, I hope Greg will chime in because he knows a great deal about this. Uh, the innovation pipeline spans basic research through applied technology development, through demonstrating a technology for the first, second, third, fourth times, to scaling it up for eventual diffusion in the commercial marketplace. And the federal government has to play a role in each of these phases. By the way, the fact that it's a linear pipeline is kind of a mental construct. That's not what actually happens. If the federal government doesn't play a role in each of these phases, what you have are these gaps, we call them valleys of debt, where the private sector is just not willing to invest enough, for example, to take a new solar cell technology to a pilot manufacturing prototype uh, line, or to take a new carbon capture technology that's been done at a very small scale and scale it up to a full-size plant, uh, demonstrating it to the world that, hey, if you're an investor, you should invest in this. 
So the federal government has to plug in on all of these and not just spend a lot of money, it's gotta spend it intelligently and target the right sorts of needs. Um, if you're interested, um, Columbia and I are coming out with a report at the end of July saying exactly how the federal government should do this. Um, and, and my colleagues, uh, uh, David Hart, uh, Julio Friedman, David Sandalone, Colin Cunliffe already do a ton of great work on this stuff. So I urge you to look at uh, their research. Excellent. Um, and kind of on top of that, you know, you, you think about some of these valleys and where, um, you know, where you see um, tripwires, I guess, going into the valley and coming out of the valley. You see companies doing it well and you see companies doing it poorly. And um, those are also lessons learned for, uh, and, and specifically I'm thinking about deployment, which is um, not harder than research and development, but certainly uh, more fraught because there's a lot more uh, on, on the line there. Um, so last question, um, what's the political resistance in India to switching away from coal? Um, and have you seen, what are the interest group politics uh, compared to the US uh, in that space? It's, it's a phenomenal question. Um, one thing that, that scares me is that as the clean energy transition gathers momentum, the interest group politics are really gonna matter. Right now, clean energy is kind of this like bit player, right? Yes, you and I can talk about it by 2030, achieving 50% share of electricity, but, but it's not there now. And so, you know, folks are just starting to take notice. Um, in India, there was a proposal in the last union budget to uh, remove the tax on coal that currently exists. Fortunately, the government did not remove that tax, largely because it's good for the government to get more money. It, it, it's hard to, uh, for policymakers to, to remove revenue sources. Um, and, and going forward, uh, I, I do expect this to intensify. The difference with the United States is in the US, we have these, for example, oil and gas companies, privately held ones, that have historically lobbied fairly hard against climate policy. In India, the coal entity, uh, the, the largest coal entities are uh, public sector entities, with the exception of a couple of private sector firms like Adani. Um, and and these, these public sector entities are not going to lobby the government in the same way that the United States' oil and gas industry has. But let me be clear, um, as soon as renewable energy starts to eat into coal's existing share, as soon as we find technologies to connect renewables to the industry sector that depends so heavily on coal, when this stuff happens, and it's not just renewables eating incremental demand, but they're actually eating into uh, existing coal production, I expect to see interest groups, for example, from the states I visited, Chhattisgarh, where these local economies depend on coal, even though it's killing them. I expect to see them rise up and say, no, 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 uh, we should not be uh, going away from, uh, you know, the, this strong domestic uh, uh, source of production and energy security. And that's going to be a battle for the future. So even though there's all this progress, we can't get complacent. There are technical challenges ahead, there are political challenges ahead, and there are certainly financial challenges as we start to source an order of magnitude, even larger capital for the energy transition than we already have going into India. That's kind of a downer to end on, so I, so, I so optimistic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so let's hear something optimistic. Um, the, the opti <laughs> I'm on the spot, I put myself there. Um, the, the optimism is that I think we are in a remarkable political moment around the world. Look, COVID offers us an opportunity to think about the future. Right now, uh, you know, to be clear, we need to think about the millions of people in this country and around the world who are unemployed 
and work on immediate fixes to help them stay on their feet. But with any luck, uh, this crisis will be different from a crisis like the Great Recession. In this crisis, it's almost like we put the economy on pause and then hopefully we'll unpause it at some point. And because of that, we may have the luxury of thinking long-term. And if we think long-term, I think we're in this amazing political moment. We have an election here in this country, uh, in, in India, you know, the, there's tremendous public support for a, a bold uh, stimulus package going forward. China, Korea, Japan, countries are all thinking long-term about how to support their industries. I think we have a chance to support the technologically advanced energy industries of the future. That's what gives me hope because in the long run, there'll be job creators and they'll be the things that enable us to get off of fossil fuels or at least capture the emissions from fossil fuels and fight climate change. So that's my dose of optimism. Excellent. Well, Varun, thank you for um, joining us today. I'm really excited to see the work that you're gonna be doing with Columbia as well as the work you're gonna be doing with us at Aspen. Um, and we're gonna send you all the questions that you didn't have a chance to get to so you could take a look at them and if you have time to maybe respond to a few, that would be fantastic. Um, and we invite everyone to join us two weeks from today. We're gonna to be talking about uh, food and food waste, um, particularly in the US right now where farmers are dumping milk and not, you know, and killing animals. And meanwhile, people are waiting in food lines, uh, not able to access, um, you know, three meals a day. And so the, where's the disconnect there and how do we think about that um, in a better way? So thanks everyone for joining us and we'll talk to you all soon. Hey, thanks so much, Greg. Thank you.